Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the third season of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and my guest today is Gigi, who is an Austrian Bitcoiner, who is the founder of 21lessons.com, a website where he wrote 21 chapters about various aspects of Bitcoin, and also bitcoin-resources.com, where he wrote, he actually accumulated some sources from where people can learn more about Bitcoin, which is interesting. I just took a look and feel like I have already learned something new. And Gigi, whom you can follow on Twitter at DerGigi, D-E-R-G-I-G-I, is also passionate about the theory of Bitcoin being a living organism, which was first, I guess, formulated by Ralph Merkel. So we have quite a lot to discuss. Hello, Gigi. Hey, Vlad. Thanks for having me. I'm happy that we get to have this kind of spontaneous discussions in which we don't have any prior plan and we just have some common points which maybe are of interest for us. Yeah, let's see let's see where this goes. I'm I'm really happy to be here and I'm excited to, about, you know, where this conversation will end up. It's it's always fun to to talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> At least for me it is. Okay, so usually the first question has to do with the reasons behind getting into Bitcoin. Because I, I guess you have to be either a libertarian or some kind of anarchist or kind of crazy to get into this and believe that it has any chances against all the odds posed by governments worldwide. Yeah, I think it's true. Um, full disclosure, I, I'm not, I wasn't a libertarian <laughs> before Bitcoin. So maybe the last criteria um, is fitting for me. I, maybe I'm a little bit crazy to go into this full time. But yeah, here I am now. And it was a very long process for me. So it took me a couple of um years actually to not ignore bitcoin and then it took me a couple of years to um actually understand it in a way so that it can't be ignored any, anymore i think it's um it, yeah i think it's it's a similar story for for many people but i i also think that once you kind of understand it deeply enough there's no going back in a way um i i think just trying to forget what you have learned and going back to believing in fiat money, for example, is not really doable. It's like once you learn that Santa Claus isn't real, then going back to the previous state and just believing in Santa Claus again is really, really hard to do. Yeah, it's like Plato's cave. Once you <laughs> yeah, get exactly. out and you get back into the cave and talk to the people who are, are still chained against the wall watching the projections made by the fire, they're not going to believe you. They're going to say, oh, you're just crazy. Or you just went outside and probably saw what we, we have seen here. And you have gone insane because of the sunlight. And there has <laughs> to be some kind of explanation why you came up with such crazy ideas. But I agree. Sometimes I think, what if Bitcoin went away tomorrow? What am I going to do with my life? Because it's hard for me to get back to trusting the government and believing that change in politics can happen by voting out certain politicians and voting in new ones. I mean, I have come to realize that it's all part of the system. It doesn't matter if they're right-wing, left-wing, centrists. They all preserve the same system. And by their 
ability to, you know, change every four years or five years, depending on the kind of laws that you have in your country, they actually preserve the state and the state never gets any smaller, regardless of what they promise. And <laughs> at the end of the day, they just take away more of your freedoms and liberties. And that's an essential reason why I have decided to stick to Bitcoin. I guess at first I, I was in just because the currency of my country, which is not Euro, like in your case, has a higher inflation rate and the amount of money which I was making was losing value quickly over time. So it was a bad idea to store my money in the lo local currency, the national one. So I looked for alternatives and you can either get dollars and euros or you can look for something which looks much more promising if you look on the long-term charts and you see, whoa, those gains, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Orange coin number go up, right? That's what, what draws most people in. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's also very important. I think price is one of the most important metrics. But I, in general, um, I stopped caring about the price in a way, which is really healthy for me. I mean, there was a time, I think everyone had a time where you just, you're up at two in the morning and checking a price <laughs> every, oh, yeah. every 30 seconds. That's really unhealthy. So I, I kind of forced myself to just ignore it. And um, yeah, I've been ignoring it now since, I think since the beginning of the bear market almost. So it's, it's been quite a while since I, I didn't give a damn about price and uh, uninstalled all trackers and all other apps that will tell me the price, but because you will, you will um, be notified by Bitcoin, Twitter and other sources, like other information sources anyway, if something crazy happens with the price. So <laughs> that's good enough for me. But the question you ask, like, um, or the question you ask yourself, what would you do if Bitcoin went away tomorrow? I think that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I come from a technology background, so I, I'd probably still be working in software. And um, I, before I went into Bitcoin, I had a big interest in yeah, free software, in the open source um, meaning of the word, like free Libre open source software. And so I, I, I'd probably yeah work on doing that full time which is is kind of hard it's this it's yeah it it has a similar tragedy of the comments um i i don't think it's that hard in a way to do bitcoin full time but i believe that doing bitcoin properly full time like without any shitcoinery or without any how should i say um if you really want to earn money in a very honest way in bitcoin it's not as easy as people might think i believe but it's definitely doable well everyone is a scammer according to an article <laughs> written by michael right. goldstein everybody wants <laughs> to take your bitcoins and you're going to find lots of reasons to ask people to give you bitcoins just like you know donating to this podcast which exactly. i guess <laughs> is scammer but if somebody donates to this podcast, you're going to get 50%, which also makes you a scammer. And yeah. <laughs> from the 50%, which I get, I'm going to give half to the Ross Albrecht Foundation to give him a second chance, maybe in front of U.S. judiciary. So I guess that also makes him a scammer, but that's not really news. <laughs> That's why he's in prison, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's a great article. Like um, uh, everyone's scammer is, I think one of the the. I, I wouldn't say it's one of the best articles. I don't know. It, it's it's just 
it's a, a mind blowing article because he kind of is right. You know, why why would you part with any of your hard earned satoshis um, if yeah, Bitcoin continues to in increase in value and if uh, hyper Bitcoinization is a real possibility. So yeah, everyone who wants to <laughs> scam you out of your satoshis by whatever way is is a scammer. And that's yeah, it's a funny thought, and I think it's 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 right in a way. But I already, you know, for example, I I, I bought several hardware wallets with Bitcoin just for privacy reasons as well. And I just recently, I I um, just out of curiosity, I signed up for Safedine's course, and I paid that in in Bitcoin as well because it was um, uh, I was traveling when I was paying it, and I didn't. Like it, it was in a way the most convenient thing for me to do <laughs> to just pay in Bitcoin. So it's it's really hard to hold on to your Bitcoins in a way. And I think um, John Carvalho, Bitcoin Aralog, uh, said this very well. He said that um, Bitcoins want to be free. And so it's really hard not to spend them or lose them or <laughs> get hacked and so on. So yeah, it's funny how, how different this is in a way. Um, like in the real world, I think it's easier to to hold on to things and just stash it away. And I think people people are getting better with stashing away bitcoins. And if you are really serious about it, you can also just time lock it away. <laughs> and it's very hard to spend. Right. I mean, the temptation of just thinking about okay, so I have let's say. 0.1 Bitcoin, which today means $1,000. And you see the new iPhone XS2 or something coming out. And you're going to say, oh my God, it has so many interesting features. And I'm going to be such a cool kid when people see me taking calls on that cool iPhone. And I can also use an emoji. Do you know what an emoji is? Yeah. I can also <laughs> use an emoji to post funny stuff on Bitcoin Twitter and yeah, you can impersonate a shitcoin, you know. <laughs> you can um, select the poop emoji and just, you know, impersonate any shitcoin you want. So that's fun. <laughs> Impress the ladies like Katoshi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know Katoshi or Katoshi? I'm not sure how what you call her. <laughs> no, I don't know. I I don't follow too many of the, of the, of the um, crypto ladies. I know there are some out there. I, I guess she's one of those. <laughs> Yeah, she's one of the smarter ones as okay. opposed to... I'm not going to tell any names. I don't want to make anyone feel offended. But there, there's that lady, I think it's Altcoin Whisperer, who just draws stuff by hand and says why XRP is going to $10,000. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I'm not sure if you saw her videos, but no, they're no, but equally <laughs> hilarious as they are dumb. You just yeah. look at it. It's like the lowest denominator of entertainment possible, but you just watch it like it's a guilty pleasure. You know, it's all bogus. <laughs> you know, you're wasting your time by watching it, but still you watch it just because you want to see how ridiculous it can get. <laughs> yeah. XRP and Ripple are two of the three words I've blocked on Twitter, so I don't see any of that content, luckily. Oh, <laughs> so you're I can, I can, out, man. I can, I can recommend to everyone to just, um, yeah, do a little bit of curation in the on online world. It, it will help to, yeah, it will help you to stay sane. But, you know, it's, it's, it's what you said also with the, with the iPhone, I think that's one of the main positive benefits that bitcoin has generally and it also had on me that uh, people are getting seriously serious again about saving so 
um, you know, Seyfedean talks a lot about the concept of time preference and how um, uh, sound money will lower your time preference. So you will save more and save into the future and think about fu future generations as well, like think about the kids and think about the grandkids and so on. And I think you see that on Bitcoin Twitter already that people say, yeah, they, their goal is to save like five Bitcoin because they have three kids. And so it's one Bitcoin for every kid and like two for their retirement or something. And it's, it's really interesting to see that. And um, I think the biggest hurdle to adoption still is that Bitcoin is so extremely different. Like since it's, uh, yeah, it's completely digital and it, it lives in the digital realm. It's just very, very different than any uh, physical thing we had before. Like people got really good um, with just taking care of their jewelry and uh, of their gold coins or what have you. And also, of, you know, just, just your wallet, the, the, not, not your Bitcoin wallet, the normal, regular fiat shitcoin wallet that you have in your pocket. Uh, people are really good of, of taking care of that in a way. I mean, you don't lose your wallet every day, but um, as, as a counterexample to that, I'm pretty sure everyone forgets a password like once a week at least or so or uses the wrong email address or uses, um, you know, fuck something up in the digital world in a way. Um, and I think, yeah, we need to get better with that. And I, I want to, um, yeah, focus my, my future career in a way um, on helping to, to create a world where everyone kind of knows how to, not only how to behave in the digital realm, but where you also have the tools that it's not as easy to lose your private keys, for example, or also where it's not that easy to just be stupid about security. Because again, I, I think in the physical world, everyone kind of knows to close the door and lock the door and also lock your car and don't leave any money laying around in your car because someone will see it in passing and just smash in your windows and they will steal your money. And I think in the, in the digital realm, we, we have still a lot of work to do there. Let's put it, let's put it like that. Yeah, I agree with you, but you are Austrian, right? So have yes. you heard about the Austrian school of economy before getting into Bitcoin? I haven't actually. So um, I'm, I'm now, <laughs> I'm, I'm Austrian both by birth and now in spirit as well. And um, it's, that's also something that's really fascinating for me. And one of my 21 lessons is actually about financial ignorance. And um, it's, yeah, <laughs> my experience was, I mean, I, I had a pretty good education, I would say, but still I didn't learn anything about money or, or economics. Um, like <laughs> I, I, even, I had some courses on economics, but you kind of learn stupid stuff in those courses. I mean, it's not really helpful and how money works and why things have value. And for example, why gold was used as money and so on and so forth. Um, I just, yeah, like all the other people around me never gave a, a, a second thought about how it, how it is that we ended up in a world where this particular paper has this kind of money. And if another number is on the paper, it has like a hundred times this, um, the value. And it's very enlightening to learn the history of money and the history of 
how certain rare metals evolved into money. And I think it's essential to understanding Bitcoin in a way, because if you don't understand all the properties of money and why gold was superior compared to all other forms of money, then you won't understand why Bitcoin is superior to all other shit coins, for example. Right. And it kind of blows my mind to know that your government, even though it had some of, it was built on the intellectual work of some of the most brilliant economists of this world, does not teach the students about at least some of the famous people who laid the foundations yeah. of the Austrian School of Economics. It's like they don't want you to know. They don't want you to discover. And even in my case, I, I did political science, which has an essential component and has some essential one-on-one classes in economics. And I had two professors, one who was doing macroeconomics and basic stuff like David Ricardo and Adam Smith. But she tended to be much more on the side of the World Bank and teaching us how economics works in there. And there was another one who was much more about economic thought. And he was about six years old, used to work at the National Bank, like the Central Bank of Romania. And there was one time, and I recall it and haven't forgotten it, when he asked us, did you know that money used to be backed by gold? <laughs> and the dollars that people were having until not so long ago were actually or could be exchanged at any time for a fixed amount of gold. And I guess I was 21 or 22 at the time. I was in my third year, was about to graduate. And up until that point, I never knew about that and never had the kind of thought which made me ask, why does this piece of paper have any kind of value? And why does the gold, not the gold, the coin, which costs much more to produce and is made of metal, why is that worthless? And it's not yeah. even worth picking up from the ground when you see it. Yeah, I think most people don't know those, those things. I mean, you need to have studied something that relates to that. And even if you studied economics, most people don't know this because, yeah, it's just money in general is just completely unquestioned. And it just, people behave like it always existed and it always was that way and um, for example on um, uh, Brady on the Citizen Bitcoin podcast if I'm not mistaken he always says that everyone is a default Keynesian and I think that's profoundly true like everyone behaves as if the current world we're living in is the way it always has been and the way it always will be that just there is some um, very mighty figure <laughs> almost like a king like you know the government prints the money and it says it's that's the reason why um yeah it has value and that is the reason why it has value you know it's just by fiat like i say it is like that so it is like that and um yeah that is, that is a very very novel development and i think it can't work for very long i i mean a lot of gold bugs say that um the fiat money is bound to collapse and they say that since a couple of decades already so uh, it seems like the governments are able to keep up the charade for way longer than people have thought and and now bitcoiners say that everything will has to uh, like everything has to go to shit very soon and I, I i'm not sure if if that's true but 
um, because yeah, it seems like governments are really good at, at keeping up the charade of fiat money. But anyway, I think that Bitcoin will succeed very, very quickly in a way. I'm way more optimistic than most people on Bitcoin Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm more aligned with the likes of Bitcoin Tina and the hyper bullish crowd because I, al I already lived through um, yeah, two exponential revolutions in a way, depending on how you want to look at it. But I lived through the rise of the internet and I, I lived through the rise of mobile computing and both were way, way, way quicker than I ever thought. And I always, you know, I was always interested in that stuff. And I always, I, in a way, I studied exponential technologies. And Bitcoin is an exponential technology built upon exponential technologies. And that's why I think it will happen very, very quickly. I mean, it, it can happen very, very quickly. <laughs> I think everyone knows that. But I'm kind of convinced that it will happen in the next nine years. So, um, yeah, Bitcoin is a little bit more than 10 years old now, like 10 and a half years. And I think the next nine years will be just extremely crazy. And it doesn't need the collapse of fiat money to succeed because the, yeah, the collapse of weak fiat currency will happen on its own, just like with the internet revolution. Um, I, th I see the internet in a way as, as a system that just eats up information. And the parallel to that is that I see Bitcoin as, as a digital organism um, like a system that eats up value. And we, we have seen what happens if the internet starts to eat up the kind of information your business relies on. Like we saw it with the record label industry. We saw it with movies. We saw it with publishing and newspapers. And we saw it with books. And we saw it with brick and mortar stores. I mean, as soon as Amazon went into selling goods online, I, I, I don't even want to know how how high the percentage of small shops is that had to close because of that. And I think the same will happen in the world of value with Bitcoin. And I think, yeah, we don't need any catastrophic events or I, I don't think we need another economic crisis necessarily for Bitcoin to succeed. I think it will accelerate it and I think it will happen anyway. <laughs> like we will have a next, um, yeah, 2008 financial crisis but um i i don't yeah i'm way more optimistic than than some people like i don't i don't think we need a doomsday economic collapse scenario for bitcoin to succeed i think that that kind of doomsday would be useful but at the same time millions of people would get stuck in this state in which they have no idea what's going on and they have no idea how to buy bitcoin anyway except for get and get on some kind of exchange which is the wrong way of approaching it mm. so yeah. i think that the adoption process is going to be much slower in the case of bitcoin just because we need to educate people and that's why we need longer bear markets after the bull market happens so that people who bought at the top have enough time to educate themselves about how this works and start running their own node as the technologies which you have mentioned, like the internet and mobile technology, can afford to have a greater degree of centralization with companies which offer services and users can remain ignorant of everything, everything taking place behind the curtain. They don't care about the code. They don't care about audits. They don't care whether or not it's open source. But in, in the case of Bitcoin, which is open source software, you want 
as many people as possible to run their own nodes. Otherwise, it's going to rely too much on big business in order to operate. And that's the kind of vision which I guess the signers or the signees, the signers of the New York agreement back in 2017 had. And their idea of Bitcoin adoption was all about making companies accept Bitcoin payments with a third party like BitPay. And they would brag about how much adoption they have spread when in reality, no business was actually taking Bitcoins. They would have an automatic process to convert to fiat. We need to make people understand why Bitcoin has value as opposed to just always comparing to the price in dollars and allowing people to remain ignorant and use SPV wallets and light wallets on their phones. And there's nothing wrong with them as long as you connect them to a full node. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point in a way. Um, I, I tend to be more optimistic and I think that uh, adoption will happen or at least can happen very quickly. And there are so many ways right now, like so many companies that are working on adoption. I, I mean, in the US, for example, you have Lolly, um, which is a cashback service. So you just shop normally using their app and whatever you buy, you, you will get a certain percentage back in Bitcoin. We don't have that in Europe yet, uh, at, at least not that, I, that I'm aware um, but this will definitely help with adoption. So, I mean, there are similar services not related to Bitcoin, which just do saving, you know, like it, it rounds up to the closest um, full unit value, like to the, it rounds up to the next dollar value or to the next euro value. And it puts whatever is rounded up in, in a savings account and you just have some savings that you maybe can go on a short holiday once a year or something. And I, I, I think similar services um, for Bitcoin are very, very important. And I think they, yeah, they, they will spring up all over the place. In Australia, there is Amber by Alex Wetzky uh, that does this as well. And uh, then suddenly you will have Bitcoin and you will start saving in Bitcoin. And as soon as people have skin in the game, they usually educate themselves at least a little bit about this kind of weird thing that they have, like that the weird nerd friend recommended to install and use. <laughs> and I think, yeah, uh, what you said about um, the problems of adoption and people don't have an idea on how, of how to buy Bitcoin and uh, buying it via an exchange is not the right way to do it. I completely agree, but I also think that exchanges are necessary and they are some kind of Bitcoin bank in a way and are a necessary evil. And I really like the idea um, that every Bitcoiner has to be kind of the, the steward of his close friends uh, or of the community uh, around him or her. And um, so if you just have friends that are interested in it or interested in buying Bitcoin, just yeah, sell them uh, some Satoshis for like 20 bucks or something. I mean, it's super easy to do. And if you're a Bitcoiner, then you kind of have a way of stacking sets anyway. So uh, I would encourage everyone to to think about doing that because it really helps with decentralization <laughs> as well. And I, I think that's a, that's a, yeah, there are ways around the problems you, you mentioned before. Yeah, usually I tell people to install Wasabi Wallet because it's also private and it's very easy to use. 
they basically nailed it in terms of interface. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really easy to use, and it it it. I mean, uh, it, it's an advanced tool, you know, it's like a power user wallet, but it's it's really nice to see what's actually happening under the hood in a way because you have uh, full control over, over your coins and you have coin, coin selection and of course you have mixing as well. So it's, it's a very good advi- advice, for, uh, especially if someone has to buy the Bitcoins uh, on, on an exchange and then you can at least mix them in Wasabi and put them into cold storage if you want. I, I also like Samurai and I know that, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of infighting going on on Twitter last week or two weeks ago when it was <laughs> in the last couple of days anyway. And I think uh, uh, both are fighting the good fight, like bo- both Wasabi Wallet and Samurai Wallet are, um, yeah, doing some excellent work to make sure that Bitcoin, um, yeah, stays private or at least semi-private and also stays fun- fungible on the network level and yeah they're doing good things and um samurai wallet for for android uh, is a, an excellent mobile wallet mobile wallet as well so i personally use wasabi on the desktop and samurai for mobile and recommend my my friends to use that as well but again yeah i mean i agree with you that there's still um a lot to be done in terms of adoption but i think in the short run, in a way, we could live with companies and exchanges and some other services um, being kind of the hubs of adoption. And those who um, are interested in this kind of stuff, they will also manage to allocate themselves and maybe run their own node and uh, at least <laughs> yeah, be, you know, um, at least come as far that they have ownership of their own keys. Because as we all know, if it's not your keys, then it's not your Bitcoin. And that's that, those are all important things to know. But uh, maybe if I can go on a slight tang- tangent there, it's, um, it's also really, really, really hard to understand and really hard to do. Um, the stuff you mentioned beforehand with um, when you learned about money and that gold, that money was actually backed by gold i think a lot of young people need to learn this aspect of bitcoin like the young people they know their way about uh, around the digital world and the digital realm but they don't really know too much about money and i think for uh, for the older generation um it's the other way around they they maybe know more about money and the history of money and why gold has value and so on and so forth because it's not too long ago that um, money was backed by gold, or you you could exchange your uh, <laughs> your bills uh, for gold still. And what I'm getting at is that Bitcoin is such a strange beast in a way because it lives in the digital realm, and um, I think about it a lot because it's it, it's like it's seriously hard to understand. And I'm I'm talking to someone who actually understands a thing or two about the digital realm but you know everything is so so different it's just an alien realm i mean you can try to explain it with analogies but these analogies will always fall short for example you can say that your private key like your your private key is your bitcoin but that's not exactly true you know it's way more complicated than that you see if if I'm at your house for example and you you leave me in a room with a couple of your gold coins for 5 minutes 
that's that's probably not a big deal you can come back and after like after a couple of minutes and you see that your coins were still there and they're not in my pocket so all is good so we're really good with things like these in the physical world because we evolved to deal with things like that but we have not evolved to deal with valuable stuff in the digital realm and so to go back to that example if you leave me in a room with the private keys to your bitcoin wallet <laughs> like if it's the little card or the piece of paper which contains your seed phrase then you're basically screwed already i mean i can take a picture i have your coins if i'm really good i can memorize what's on the card and i have your coins or i take another piece of paper and copy them by hand and i have your coins and Sure, there is always ways around that. I mean, you can uh, add an additional passphrase, which is stored separately and so on. But that's not my point. My point is that we're not used uh, to dealing with magic like that. And I I think that's, uh, yeah, that's one of the hard problems to solve. (laughs) And and that's also like the focus of my my writing in a way is that I, I want to make sure that people know that this stuff is truly magical because it's, it's, it's so different. And I truly think that it's just a, a different beast. And of course, you know, ma- magic can be dangerous. So I think it's important to, to frame it in that way. Yeah, I agree. It's different and difficult. And I have no idea how I can explain to somebody good practices to secure their keys <clears throat> if they have a lot of guests and if they happen to invite over people who are knowledgeable in terms of Bitcoin. And this is a big issue also with Bitcoin meetups because you make friends with people who are into it and have common interests, but you don't want to invite them over to your house because obviously they can find out creative ways of looking for your private key while you are just going to the bathroom or preparing, fixing a drink in the kitchen or something. And I have also heard John Carvalho talk about the issue of people following you because you never know when you leave this kind of meetup and they follow you home and then they know where you live and they can kidnap you. They can do lots of crazy stuff. We're not prepared for this. And it's such a small phenomenon that people are not aware to protect themselves from it. You don't have communities which actually care about who follows you home because the most they can do is, uh, according to what they think, is steal stuff from your house. But it's not like they can steal your life savings, which you might be storing in Bitcoin because usually people don't have a lot of money in their houses because they store their money in banks. In the case of exchanges which are bona fide banks for cryptocurrencies and in our specific case bitcoin it can be a bad idea to store them for multiple reasons as i don't think you have any kind of backing by the government and i think at some point i heard that coinbase is backed to a certain limit like one thousand dollars Per account, if it happens that Coinbase gets hacked and you're going to get a reimbursement. And also, it's a lot easier, I guess, to get to exploit some kind of security issue in an exchange than to rob a bank 
And if you rob a bank, you're going to rob a local one, which doesn't have a lot of money. But if you get into the servers of an exchange, then you, you have access to a lot more money than you can probably launder throughout your entire life. Actually, that's a big issue now that I think about it. If you're a hacker and you can get access to all the coins on Binance, let's say, you're probably better off just taking one Bitcoin or something because otherwise it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember who wrote the article, but uh, I think there was an, an, an analysis done on, I think it was actually the Binance hack. Uh, it was called like the very patient Binance hacker or something like that. And uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you <laughs> if you manage to get your hands on a large amount of coins, then you, you will have to be patient and um, <laughs> because there is just no way to exchange uh, all at once, all the coins at once currently. And yeah, I mean, you, you're probably better off being patient and um, waiting for the value to go up anyway. But uh, yeah, what you said about physical securities is absolutely true and also scary and also um yeah it's i think we will see that more and more and i think we will um have to reintroduce yeah what we learned in the physical world in a way i'm just not sure if it will be um banks and also safe deposit boxes and so on because as i said things just work differently i mean if you put your seed phrase in a safe deposit box um there if if someone who works at the bank just looks into the safe deposit box then your stuff is already gone you know what i mean even though the stuff is still there like the card is still in the safe deposit box so i mean more modern cryptographic solutions to the problem would be to set up um, multi-signature solutions but of course that's not easy to do and um you it's also not easy to yeah choose the correct multi-signature protocols in a way like how many keys do you actually need and how many keys of those will you need to unlock your bitcoin and um i mean the most popular currently i guess is two out of three multi-signature but then again there comes the question who do you give the custody of of your keys i mean is it just friends or family or do you use like a custody service i mean those services are popping up left and right currently and uh, the problem remains that it will create a honeypot of of keys you know and i know jw weatherman who uh, i mean people have d differing opinions about him but I, I think a lot of the stuff he says is um true or at least going in the right direction and he says that he he doesn't think that um, like custodians of keys, even if it's multi-signature, it's not the best idea because you create this kind of honeypot. And um, it might be better to just put one of the keys in an envelope and hand it to your lawyer, for example, because they are obliged to um, take care of it and take custody of that and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in these matters, but I think it's interesting and it's a fascinating topic. And anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff, I also recommend going through Jameson Lopp's list of uh, physical assaults on, um, on Bitcoiners um, because it's, 
yeah, it, it will help you to stay vigilant and maybe also a little bit paranoid. I mean, I, I have, I've never thought about, you know, people following home from meetups and so on, because I haven't been to many meetups yet and uh, also not to too many conferences. But I, I, since I'm kind of in Bitcoin full, full time now, I plan to visit more conferences and I think it will also be more difficult to stay anonymous or at least uh, pseudonymous because so far I haven't doxed myself too hard yet. I mean, as you said, uh, <laughs> I'm from Austria. Okay. That's, that's kind of doxing myself a little bit, but I, I'm usually traveling a lot and I've, you know, been all over the place. And uh, the other thing that people know about me is my Twitter handle and that's basically it but if you go to a conference you at least you dox your face so people take pictures of you and they see you they know how you look and it's kind of hard to stay anonymous for long or pseudonymous for long and I know that yeah other people have this kind of problem and some people even decide to um, stay completely in the online world for that reason and just don't go to any meetups and don't go to any conferences but i think it's also important to meet people in real life in a way and uh yeah work with them in a in a more serious uh fashion in a way so i don't know to what to do about that to be honest it's not an easy issue to fix as i don't think we have had anything similar in our history yeah, it's again, it's it's kind of a a, a weird new world, and <laughs> yeah, it's Marty Band always says it's Bitcoin is like the expanding universe, and we try to um, discover new bits and pieces of this expanding universe every day, and I think that's that's really true. I think that um, yeah, Bitcoin since the beginning it kind of took. On a life of its own and you can also see that since the narratives around bitcoin have changed and um, also people that worked in bitcoin or with bitcoin very early on still had a at least from our point of view now uh, a really bad and wrong understanding of bitcoin and um yeah i think that's what what keeps it very interesting and fascinating because i think what we currently think we know about bitcoin will be very different in five to ten years and uh, that's that's a very exciting thought <laughs> but at the same time we should not be expecting for bitcoin to change too much in the next five to ten years maybe that we're yeah, going to have Schnorr signatures and the lightning network is going to be bigger maybe that we're going to have a layer three for tokens yeah, of course, but that's that's not what I mean. I'm uh, because Bitcoin hasn't changed technically too much, and still the narratives shifted quite a bit. And that's I mean, for example, the easiest example to go to is uh, that even Andreas Antonopoulos talked about it's instant and it's free. You know, like transactions are instant and free, and that's simply not true. It was just that Bitcoin hasn't accrued too much value at this point at this point in time for fees um, transaction fees having a meaningful value and people are saying the same thing now about the lightning network for example and i think people should be really cautious about that because even even though the the transaction fees are in in the satoshi or milisatoshi 
area. <laughs> uh, it has happened before and it might happen again. And currently fees are very low on the base chain as well. But, you know, if something approximating hyper-Bitcoinization truly does happen, then, um, yeah, people will cry like a lot of tears for <laughs> every transaction they made because they paid transaction fees and it might have been an unnecessary transaction and so on and so forth. So uh, I think even if Bitcoin doesn't change on a technical level, like if, it, if, if we stay on the same Git commit for the next 10 years and the only thing that changes is that 2 billion people are using it and things will be very different and the narratives will be very different. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like um, the metaphor of thinking about the Bitcoin based chain as like container ships in a way. And I think we will see that more and more that um, a lot of stuff will happen on Lightning Network and other layers and everything kind of consolidates back to the base chain. I mean, that's also the general idea, but um, I think that as time progresses and Bitcoin eats up more and more value and more people and more companies and maybe even nation states will start to use it, that block space on, on the base chain will, it will become so extremely scarce that uh, first of all, transaction fees will rise by a lot. So I'm, I'm not concerned about Bitcoin security by any stretch of the imagination because I think um, moving stuff on the, on the main chain will be just very, very expensive. And also I think that um, the space on the blockchain will be used extremely efficiently. Like um, we will do an insane amount of batching. We will do all kinds of crazy things with Taproot and uh, Schnorr and everything that's to come. And... Um, I think we will, yeah, see the narrative shift again in a way and Bitcoin will truly become a global settlement layer for something that we nowadays call banks, but it will probably be different entities. So um, that's, that's how I think about it currently, at least. I'm sure I'll think about it differently in a year from now, but <laughs> that's where I'm at right now. That's the beauty of it, because if I read something which I wrote maybe a year ago or a couple of years ago about Bitcoin, there, then I'm going to think that it's rather juvenile and underdeveloped in terms of the complexities that you have to deal with. And I guess that next year I'm going to read again my articles, which I currently work on, and I'm going to be disappointed and say, okay, so was, was I really this naive? <laughs> but that's good. That's a good thing to happen because it means that you're learning and that you're growing. And in the software world, for example, there is also this, the, the same principle. And people say that if, if you look at your old code and you're not ashamed, then you're doing something wrong because you're, you learn something new like every day and you like your understanding of everything will evolve in such a fashion that every code you've written like two years ago, you look at it and you will be ashamed in a way. And I think it, it's, it's similar here that as long as you're learning, then your understanding of the whole system will evolve. And if you look back at it and it's a little bit naive, then I, I would say that's a good thing because you learned a lot. <laughs> so let's talk about that Ralph Merkel theory of which you have also decided to 
or about which you have decided to talk about in the upcoming Bitcoin Takeover book. And it's about Bitcoin as a living organism, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, I I have like five or so articles I'm currently working on and I'm really bad at finishing them. <laughs> and one of them is... Uh, yeah, looking at Bitcoin as a living organism. I haven't decided on the title yet, but, but maybe this will be the title. And I really like the work that Brandon Quidem has done as well, because he looked at Bitcoin also as a living organism. And he uh, chose the, the analogy of a mycelial network, which is the um, yeah mushroom fungi network that um, yeah that underlies the the tiny mushrooms you actually see bursting through the ground. And he says that Bitcoin is the mycelium, which um, is underground and um, shifts nutrients from place to place and also um, helps the forest grow to um, and helps to provide chemicals and nutrients and other things in the forest. And it breaks down like that branches and uh, dead leaves and dead insects and so on and so forth. And as you said, Ralph Milko, Ralph Merkel was the first one who um, who said that Bitcoin is a living organism. And uh, the passage in, it, it was actually a paper on, on uh, DAOs, so on decentralized autonomous organisms. And the DAOs have a really bad reputation because of Ethereum now, because the first big DAO that was launched in Ethereum, um, yeah, had a big bug in it and it led to the, fork of Ethereum into Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And yeah, so it was a huge shit show. But I, I still think that DAOs are a neat idea. And uh, Ralph Merkel did so as well in this paper. And um, I I really like the analogy of Bitcoin as a living organism because I think it's, it's kind of profoundly true. And I, I also know that people said the same thing about the internet in a way. Um, they, they didn't necessarily say that it's a living organism, but they, they made it... Yeah, they made analogies to it, the analogies to the brain, for example, and they said it's like a, a global mind and a global brain and so on and so forth. And but I, I also think that this is it is kind of true, you know, it is, it, it, it kind of is it behaves like a hive mind in a way, and you can see that um, manifest in all kinds of phenomena. I mean, I think Wikipedia is undoubtedly the yeah the the knowledge base of the hive mind in a way, and you can also see various reactions globally that you would otherwise only see in biological systems like um i mean we can bring it back to bitcoin as well because uh that's also something i will write about or um, i mean i i have already written about it i haven't i just haven't published it yet but uh we saw it a lot with the toxicity uh, of bitcoin maximalists and in a way, I see Bitcoin maximalists as the white blood cells, the, the immune system of Bitcoin. And um, I mean, it's only one part of the immune system, obviously, but uh, they act as agents to that speak up whenever Bitcoin is attacked. But uh, as in biological systems, you can also have autoimmune diseases. And the, uh, what happens there is that um, the, your immune system attacks yourself like the, the immune system attacks the living organism itself even though nothing is really wrong and i think we saw that a lot on twitter i mean not, maybe not a lot but we see it from time to time that um the hive mind overreacts and uh people get attacked for 
almost no reason and the mob will come after you even though you haven't really done anything wrong i would say and i i think it it kind of helps to explain certain phenomena to look at it through this kind of lens and um yeah another example would be that usually living systems have um yeah multiple systems that kind of do the same thing in a way <laughs> like you have a natural redundancy and uh, for example we also we have um yeah we, we have two circulatory systems we have uh one that circulates blood one that circulates the uh, lymph uh i don't know how to say it in english it's yeah, probably lymph. lymphatic fluid <laughs> and we also have a respiratory system and so on and I, I think it's fascinating to see Bitcoin evolve and the same thing happening there in a way because Bitcoin is um, in a way decoupling from the internet. I mean, not really, but at least there is the potential that it decouples from the internet if it needs to. And uh, you see that with all kinds of projects now. I mean, people are working on um, mesh networks like never before because now suddenly you kind of need it you know what i mean and uh, you also have um, bitcoin transactions broadcast via radio for example and you also have uh, bitcoin transactions broadcast via satellite of course and i think we will see um, those developments continue and this is um, yeah, similar to what is happening under cert certain circumsta circumstances in biological organisms. So I think it's a, a, a nice way to think about Bitcoin. I have heard people compare Bitcoin to an artificial intelligence. I have heard people call Bitcoin some kind of alien technology or the invention <laughs> of a time traveler. So I guess your biological analogy makes a lot more sense than a lot of the crazy <laughs> stuff which I get to hear or read on a basis. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very easy to, to go overboard with the analogies or go really crazy. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I know the theory that Satoshi was a time-traveling AI and went back in time to invent Bitcoin so that the machines have something to you know take over the world in a in a even more serious fashion because they now can easily do economic activities autonomously and so on i mean it's it's fun but it's not very realistic or or not very helpful except for you know maybe a future science fiction book but i think um some analogies are really very very helpful and i mean the the, the biggest analogies we for Bitcoin we had so far is um, it's digital gold. And I think that's very helpful to think about it, but it's only helpful to an extent. I mean, you kind of have to know why gold is valuable and so on and so forth, but people kind of know that gold is valuable, even if they don't really know the reasons, they kind of get it. That, yeah, if, if you have a bar of gold at home, then that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> and uh, the second one I really like is that it's free speech money because people also kind of, kind of know what this is about, especially if you're uh, embedded in the online world a little bit and uh, you realize that people are getting deplatformed and censored left and right. And uh, like, I mean, there are so many YouTubers that just uh, get demonetized or deplatformed and uh, people are get, getting banned from Twitter and Facebook and all the other big platforms. So if you ever um, ran into that problem or experienced it yourself, then you kind of know the idea behind free speech money. And I think those two things, like those two analogies, they really help to 
think about Bitcoin in a proper way because on the one hand, it's uh, really valuable like gold and it has reasons, very good reasons why it's so valuable. I mean, it's the store of value proposition and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, the free speech money is really about the um, censorship resistance of Bitcoin. Like it's, f for, like it's virtually uncensorable the way it's set up and this is by design and understanding that, I mean, it's, it's a very nice entry point uh, down the rabbit hole because understanding why Bitcoin is censorship resistant, it leads you to understanding almost all of Bitcoin, <laughs> like al almost everything uh, apart from the value proposition of absolute scarcity and uh, the stock to flow ratio, which is important for that. But in terms of decentralization and in terms of how the system is set up so that it operates without any central point of failure, free speech money is a really good analogy. And I think to loop it back to the organism thing, I think if you look at Bitcoin as a decentralized organism, like Brandon Quinn called it, if you look at it as a living organism in a way like life itself, which is very decentralized, I think that's a very useful analogy because, uh, I mean, take ants, for example. No, not one entity in the world controls ants. <laughs> and I think, you know, thinking about it in that way is, is really helpful because it, it doesn't matter if the US or China bans ants, you know, I mean, they will be there. <laughs> they will be in their country and they will do their thing. And in the same way, Bitcoin is really unkillable in a way. And Bitcoin will continue to do its thing, whether you ban it or not. Yeah, one of the arguments which I usually have with a friend of mine who is a gold bug, he likes to say that if all exchanges get shut down, then it's going to be worthless, which means that nobody's going to transact Bitcoin anymore. And I tell him that, no, people will keep on doing it and develop a black market, maybe on Tor or something, on some kind of Onion website. Because there is only so much that web, that governments can censor. And at the same time, there are so many creative ways on the internet or maybe through mesh radio, ham radio antennas, to broadcast transactions and create alternative markets. And up to this point, exchanges are, as banks are only convenient for maybe newbies or for people trying to maximize their investments by trading shitcoins to buy more bitcoins because you know every everyone's a scammer but <laughs> ups, at some point in the future i reckon that exchanges will get shut down and the regulations will get harsher as governments realize that the ground is slipping and the quicksand is pulling their fiat money down People are realizing the potential of Bitcoin and they don't, do not want to have something which they cannot control. It makes a lot of sense. If I was a central banker, I would talk against Bitcoin all the time. I would be the equivalent of Noriel Rubini, I guess, because my whole future and my whole career and financial stability relies on the preservation of the system, which brought me to this very privileged status. So... In, tem in terms of incentives, it makes a lot of sense for people to defend what they already have and try to deter others from creating the kind of future which takes away their status and puts them in a situation where they have to start from scratch and prove themselves once again. 
But then again, it's not true because if you have a lot of money, then you can also buy a lot of Bitcoin right now and load up on bags just in case. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that. Like, um, what, you're, what you're saying is true, but I think um, it's even more complicated. Like from a game theoretical point of view, it's more complicated because if you're a really smart government, then you would benefit in adopting Bitcoin as quickly as possible. If you actually realize what this thing is, and if you actually realize that the sand on which you're standing is, you know, turning into quicksand, as you said. And I think we saw the same thing during the time of the prohibition, for example. Um, like if you want to outlaw brewing beer or making wine or, um, yeah, making vodka or schnapps or whatever, you can do that, but it's really hard to enforce. And if you're actually truly smart about it, you introduce taxes on those kind of goods and then you're way better off. And we see it happening the same thing now with the quote-unquote war on drugs or at least war on marijuana. <laughs> I mean, in the, in the US, the, uh, those states that legalized marijuana, they have a booming industry and it's just, it's good for the state. And like, it's good for the government as well. And I think if you, if you realize that Bitcoin is actually a contender to your power and to the power of central banks and to your ability to, to print money, I think outlawing it and fighting it is in, in a way the, the worst strategy you can um, pursue. And I think we already see this kind of realization um, maybe around the world, I don't know, but at least in the US, in the congressional hearings that happened the last couple of weeks and also the hearings in the House uh, of the House of Representatives. Um, there are some politicians already that kind of get it and uh, they at least realize what Bitcoin is and what the potential of Bitcoin is. And they're not talking about outlawing Bitcoin. I mean, some of them are, but they haven't understood a thing. And um, my opinion about it is, yes, you can outlaw Bitcoin, but it will only hurt yourself. It won't hurt Bitcoin. And that's, again, I think very helpful to think about it as a global organism that lives on the internet because, okay, maybe you can outlaw it, but it, 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 it effectively will not outlaw it in your country. People will still use it just like people still brew beer at home. I mean, you don't need much to, to brew beer or to just create alcohol. It's very easy to do. And also using Bitcoin is very easy to do in a way. I mean, if you know what you're doing, but it's the same for brewing beer. You just, you need any access to the internet. And as I said, you can go over tour and nobody will ever know that you had anything to do with Bitcoin. But even, but it, it's even more complicated than that because it's, it can be even easier. I mean, uh, you, you flip a coin a couple of times and you have a private key and you can just um, generate addresses out of that by hand if you have to and tell people your addresses and they can send Bitcoin to you. So it's, it's not even bound to any type of technology in a way. It's, 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 it's way more beautiful than that. And it's way more resilient than just... You know, people say that, uh, what if the government shuts down all electricity, for example, or what if you don't have access to a computer? It doesn't matter for Bitcoin. You can still have access to it in a way. And I think, again, if, you, if you're really smart about it as a government, you try to be the first one to adopt Bitcoin in a really big and meaningful way. Just like, for example, the Nordic countries in Europe, they were the first ones to adopt broadband in a really serious way and we saw a lot of technological innovation happening there because people just had 
excellent access to the internet there. And a lot of new industries were spawned and so on and so forth. So I, I, I agree in spirit with what you're saying, but I think the execution is way more complicated because, as I said, if you decide to ban Bitcoin, then you're, I think you're only hurting yourself. Also, sometimes I think about this kind of scenario where it's illegal to mine Bitcoin and we all run... So let's say that these big plants where they put together mining rigs, actually they're not called plants, but wait, I forgot the word for it. It's like <laughs> a conglomeration of miners, a pool. Okay, it was so easy. So we no longer have pools. So we're going to run from our computers, the mining rigs, like on our laptop on Tor. And there is going to be millions of users just being on tour mining Bitcoin. <laughs> and that would be like the ultimate decentralization because if governments decide that, you know, it's wasteful to use energy to mine Bitcoin in these industrial facilities, then people will do it from their own homes. And there's going to be just as much hash power and there will be no way to determine, maybe except for the amount of data which gets sent. But then again, the blocks are only one megabyte in size. So that will not make much of a difference. You might as well download porn from torrents so they don't get suspicious. Yeah, yeah I think uh, there is a lot, of, a lot to unpack, unpack here, actually. But uh, I think... Um, yeah, what, what you said in essence is, is absolutely right because, um, again, it comes back to enforceability. Just like uh, if you want to stop everyone from brewing beer in your country, you will have to surveil, like perfectly surveil everyone all the time because people are able to, you know, piss in a cup and take some, I don't know what, sugar <laughs> and and... Uh, use that to create alcohol and people do all the time in prison you know what i mean and it's the same with bitcoin it's really really hard to enforce um any ban of bitcoin and like you said also with mining you can mine that mining actually is the only thing where you can be perfectly anonymous in bitcoin because you can in theory set up a mining facility or just set up a, a small mining rig put it somewhere where there is excess energy or where there's any energy and it, it doesn't have to be on the grid. So it, it, it's not something, I mean, you can go to a waterfall for God's sake or to any river and generate electricity there with a small device and plug in your mining rig there, even if it's just small and you can, you can, I mean, if, if you're big enough, you can just mine Bitcoin on your own. And if you're small, you can join a mining pool and we're also with, you know, there, there's development on all fronts, like with BetaHash and other mining protocol developments, uh, you, you can be perfectly anon anonymous and get Bitcoins that way. So there's literally no way of stopping people from doing that other than a perfect authoritarian surveillance state, which I mean, you know, I know some people argue we're living in, but uh, I'm, I'm not as pessimistic about it. And you, you would have to have total control over your population and the closest to the, the closest to total control we currently have is is china and arguably north korea and north korea arguably is buying bitcoins i mean not the population is but you know the, the leaders are and in china 
they tried to ban Bitcoin. I don't know. I lost count probably 50 times and they never really succeeded. I mean, people are still using Bitcoin in China and I mean, you can probably land in prison or worse there and people still do because it's almost impossible to enforce. And yeah, I, I tend to be very optimistic and I think that um, the, the people running the proper governments, quote unquote proper of the world, they're, they're probably way smarter than most people give them credit for. And I think in the European Union and also in the US and also in other developed countries, we will see more and more parties and more and more politicians push for the adoption of Bitcoin in a, in a meaningful way. Like at, at, least, at least don't do any stupid and unnecessary regulation. And I think we've seen that in the last 10 years that a lot of countries were quite friendly to Bitcoin businesses. And uh, you can already see that those countries that were friendly in a regulatory and also in a, um, a friendly in terms of taxation, a lot of businesses were spawned there. And I think we will see a continual worldwide competition of governments um, as, as also was outlined in the sovereign individual, maybe uh, I, I know a lot of Bitcoiners have read that, that governments will have to compete for citizens and governments will also have to compete for companies in a way. And I think Bitcoin helps with that because it's a global phenomenon. And if the country you were born in isn't happy with you creating a Bitcoin business, then you will just pack your stuff, move to another country. It's very easy nowadays, I, I would say, and start your business there. Right. Also, I was thinking as you're talking about this situation where we get maybe a political party which is friendly to Bitcoin at the European Parliament level or independent politicians among Bitcoiners here in Europe who run for office and make sure to preserve the legislation at a reasonable level. Do you think that's feasible in any way? Or do you think it's just a good idea to be passive and let them be clueless and not understand what's going on? I think it's already happening. And I think um, nobody has any power over that in a way that you could, that you could even say, we will have to keep politicians clueless. Uh, first of all, there is no we really. And second of all, I think a lot of politicians are interested in Bitcoin for whatever reason. I mean, for the same bunch of reasons that uh, people on Bitcoin Twitter are um, interested in, in it. And we, I think we see that happening already. I think there, there are a bunch of Bitcoiners in politics. <laughs> and I think this uh, will continue to increase. I mean, it's, it's, it's like saying 20 years ago, um, should we stop politicians from using the internet? And do you think there are any nerds that use the internet in politics? I, I think it's, it's the same all over again. It will just happen naturally and people will see why Bitcoin is useful and they will start to adopt it and they will start to use it. They will start to save in it. They will start to understand it. And um, there is just, yeah, no way of, of stopping the adoption in, in that way because I, I truly believe that it's virtually impossible to kill bitcoin at this point um i'm th that's <laughs> i mean i know that's a bold statement and i'm not like uh ultra bullish and optimistic because i also think that attacks will continue to happen and i think that we're 
Uh, I've said this before, I think we're still living in peacetime. I think that big attacks will come. And I also think that uh, government-sponsored or government-motivated attacks will come. And maybe also, you know, um, other big players like big banks or even a conglomeration of banks will try to attack or undermine Bitcoin. And I think we have happened like we, we had plenty of attacks in the past but i think even bigger attacks will come and um yeah i'm i mean there there are a lot of attack vectors and a lot of things that can go wrong in a way and i'm not only talking about physical attacks uh, as we've seen one of the biggest attacks on bitcoin was a social one with um yeah segway to x and the push from the industry side to change the consensus mechanism of all the consensus rules of bitcoin in a hard fork way. And I think, yeah, we will have to be very vigilant and we will have to, in a way, stick to our guns and um, make sure that Bitcoin stays true to its essence and Bitcoin stays decentralized and uncorruptible. But as it is now, I'm like, having said all of that, I'm, I'm very, very optimistic that Bitcoin can't be killed. Also, because it has a very good track record, and I think it's way more resilient than most people think. Um, I thought about it a lot, and I'm as as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm I'm still trying to work out all of my thoughts, and I'm I'm trying to write about that as well. But once you go through the thought exercise of trying to kill Bitcoin, you kind of realize how hard it truly is, <laughs> and there there are also many many ways how Bitcoin can recover even if it's a near catastrophic event. Like it's it's insane how resilient the whole system is. And I mean that's by design, but still it's it's very surprising how resilient it is. What is it like to be a Bitcoiner there in Austria? Do you know people who are also into Bitcoin or do you have places where you can go and maybe buy lunch or grab a beer or get some kind of accommodation like an airbnb or a hotel room i'm asking because they, i have seen this kind of experiment being conducted worldwide and some places where you'd expect to be a lot of adoption actually have a lot of skepticism even mm -hmm. silicon valley where it's more likely for people to ask you for some kind of shit coin, which is basically an ERC-20 token that was printed specifically for that business to make discounts, like, you know, tokenization. It's more likely to be able to pay in that than in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. I'm not sure if I have a good answer for that. Um, the main reason is that there are multiple reasons in a way. Uh, I recently moved, so I'm really out of the way now. <laughs> so I don't talk to anyone about Bitcoin except for my girlfriend. And you know, that's limited to like 10 minutes a day. <laughs> Otherwise, she wouldn't be my girlfriend anymore, probably. <laughs> But um, I, I have a bunch of people uh, which I got into Bitcoin, actually. And um, I, I sometimes meet them or sometimes talk to them. And... Uh, Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, the last probably two or three years, it was one of the main topics we talked about. And they're really interested and all of them are, you, you know, kind of nerds from with a computer science background and so on and so forth. But um, I actually don't know too many Austrian Bitcoiners because uh, like 90 plus percent of my 
wake, like my waking hours are, uh, I am in cyberspace and not in meat space. So uh, it doesn't really matter where I am in the world. I, I talk to the same people and listen to the same people and write with the same people wherever I am. And all of them are, um, you know, cartoon avatars on Twitter mostly. <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting from that point of view as well. I know that um, there are, like there, there is a Bitcoin scene in Austria and um, a lot of people also go to Switzerland because Switzerland is a hotbed for um, yeah, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I, I would say especially other cryptocurrencies. I mean, there's a lot of shitcoinery going on uh, in Switzerland. But uh, I don't know. I, I think, again, to come back to, to how it was with the internet, I, I, I really think that in a couple of years, you, you probably won't need meetups anymore. Like there was a time where the internet just got started where, yeah, you would have meetups in the same way, but everything went so quickly that it wouldn't make sense to meet with a group of, pe of people that use the internet. Uh, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's kind of, <laughs> it would be kind of weird. Uh, like it's weird to think about that now. I mean, you have special interest groups and I think we will see the same thing happening in Bitcoin. And I think it kind of is already happening. I mean, you have those people that are really keen on understanding the economics of Bitcoin um, and with, they will uh, yeah, be reading Mises and Rothbard and other Austrian economists and they will be deep into the Austrian economic side of things. You will have some tech guys that are really keen on developing some tiny part of Bitcoin further. Maybe you have some Bitcoin core developers that develop on the base chain. Maybe you have some a group of people that are dealing uh, just with privacy issues like you, you have now with the Wasabi and Samurai guys. And there, I know there are plenty of other people's uh, plenty of other people working on uh, other coin join and mixing and privacy technologies. And you will also have, you know, second and third layer developers. And I'm pretty sure there will be huge communities building around that. And we, again, I think it's already happening. You have uh, lightning workshops and lightning hack days and you have uh, meetups that are specifically just for lightning developers. And um, so I think depending on where you are in life <laughs> and where you're coming from, like if you're a tech guy, you're probably most interested in lightning. If you come from an economy background, then you're most interested probably in the value proposition of Bitcoin and the monetary and economic aspects of it and the second and third layer effects, like the second and third order effects of, um, yeah, what, what would happen to the global economy if Bitcoin really becomes the new gold standard and if we're living in the world of the Bitcoin standard and um, what would the second order effects of hyper-Bitcoinization be and so on and so forth. So I think it will get more specialized as... Um, adoption increases and more people care about Bitcoin. That, that was a very long answer. And the short answer would be, I don't know how it is to be a Bitcoin in Austria. I just know how it is to be a Bitcoin on Twitter. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I also don't have anybody in real life to talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> and usually when people talk about their work, I just think of something else passively. <laughs> Sitting there thinking of, okay, if I start talking about my job, then 
it's going to get difficult and nasty and they're going to roll their eyes and say, oh, you think you know it all and have it all figured out about money and how the financial system works. So shut up, just enjoy life while you still can, which is a good point because honestly, you can't just postpone everything in your life with under the principle of low time preference and say, I'm not going to spend anything and I'm not going to make friends who don't think like I do because... That's terrible. Yeah, that's terrible indeed. <laughs> and we should learn from each other. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I openly agree that I might be wrong about stuff that I think and stuff that I say, because in the past I have proven, or some people have proven to me that the strong opinions which I had turned out to be wrong. And I guess until my 25th birthday, I thought there, there wasn't anything in this world that you could do without a government. Mm -hmm. But I guess there was this huge awakening in 2016 when you had lots of political events which pointed to the opposite direction. And when you don't like what's going on, even I don't care if you like Trump or not or what your view is on the European Parliament... I have realized that as long as you have this functional democracy where your freedom, like your basic liberties are preserved, you're better off without the state. And you can yeah. actually live without social security. You can actually live without anything that your state provides to you, granted that you can pay for it. And once you realize that you have a free market out there which awaits for your participation and you can actually contribute to a smaller economy which is not distorted by the government or is distorted because it could have been bigger but is in many ways purer and people have a greater incentive to be honest because they know that the reputation is everything that they got. It's not like they have any kind of institution owned by the state to back their claims and provide that social component which makes people trust it. A lot mm -hmm. of people go to a hospital just because they know that it's owned by the government and it offers services which are based on their medical insurance. But mm -hmm. I went throughout the past year to private clinics whenever I needed anything and I've actually paid less than I would have if I opted in for the government's social security system for health insurance, because I only paid when I needed it. I didn't pay like a fixed percentage of the income. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, those are such hard problems and it's so difficult to talk about them because in a way, um, I agree with what you're saying, but I also come from a country where we have a working um, social security system and we have kind of a safety net which you can fall into whenever uh, life cuts you off at the knees you know and I think that's a very good thing to have but as you said uh, before that the, the state and systems like it they don't tend to get smaller so there's always the, the yeah the problem that once you have such a system in place that it grows and grows and it becomes very inefficient and uh, what started as a very nice idea which is i mean you will always have some people that for whatever reason are not able to make money or are not able to 
make any meaningful amount of money so that they can live properly and have the basic needs met. I mean, you have, you will always have like 10 to 20% of the population. You, you will always have disabled people. You will always have like people that uh, are so low in IQ. And I'm not saying that IQ is everything there is to it, but you, you have, you will have people that will have just difficulties to do the most basic things, even though um, they are not mentally challenged in, in another way. Um, and so you, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very pro, um, um, private hospitals and competition. And I'm very against government intervention. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> Obviously, since <laughs> I think everyone who has been in Bitcoin for a long while kind of realizes that historically uh, central planning and government intervention is just a catastrophe. But the problem remains that you will always have a certain percentage of the population that you will need to take care of. And I also know, I mean, there, there are arguments that... Uh, the free market can take care of that. But I've just been to the US for three months and I'm not convinced that the US did a great job of, of that in a way. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I've uh, been in San Francisco, for example, as well. And uh, I, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's a complicated issue and I don't claim to have the answers or I don't even claim to exactly know what I'm talking about. It's just, I was coming from Europe. I was stunned about the level of poverty in the US and also um, the just amount of homeless people, uh, for example, in San Francisco, but in other places as well. And I'm not convinced that um, removing all safety nets in a way is the best idea, but again, I, I actually don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's just uh, as someone from a functioning country with a functioning social security net, it's uh, interesting to see how it is in other countries. And in, in Austria and also in Germany and generally in Central Europe, we, we have, we kind of have, I'm not sure if it's the best of both world, worlds, but we at least have both worlds. If you can afford a private clinic and if you can afford private healthcare, then you get that and you'll get better service and you'll get uh, better doctors and you have low waiting times and so on and so forth. You just get better treatment in general. But the, the treatment that everyone gets is really, really good as well. And if you're even if you're living on the street, you can go to any hospital and you will be taken care of. And in the US, for example, I mean, just if for whatever reason you currently don't have any income and you break your foot, and it can be a death sentence in a way. And it, it can be, yeah, both economically and also physically because um, maybe the, the hospital just isn't able to take care of you. And yeah, it's, I mean, all of those are, are very difficult questions. But before I go deeper into that, I, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I thought it was really funny what you said, that you don't have any um, real-life friends in a way to talk about Bitcoin. And um, 
I I'm currently in a way in in a in a similar situation because I just recently moved. But uh, I think there's also always a way to talk about Bitcoin because it touches so many things, and you can talk about Bitcoin even without talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, I just recently had a conversation with a gentleman who was probably like six years old, and he was complaining that um, just the the money doesn't hold its value. You know, he, he just was complaining that everything gets expensive all the time. And he remembers a time where, you know, a certain amount of euros bought you debt. And now you don't even get like one tenth of it and, and so on and so forth. And in a way, what he was doing was talking about one aspect of a problem that Bitcoin solves. And I talked to him for like an hour or so without ever mentioning Bitcoin. It's just, I was just really curious about his, his experience and uh, how he sees those things without knowing anything about Bitcoin or Austrian economics. And it's, yeah, I think there, there, are, there are ways to talk about Bitcoin with almost, almost anyone. And the other thing you touched on, which I, I thought also is interesting for Bitcoin and uh, the, the thing we talked about before with uh, staying anonymous and pseudonymous, you said that um, once you are in a like free market competition environment, your reputation matters a lot. And once you move away from government dictate, then all you have in a way is your reputation. And I think that's also uh, really cool in the Bitcoin world because, I mean, we are having this conversation right now and all I have is my reputation because you, you don't know my, my background really. You don't, you don't even know my name <laughs> and all you have is my Twitter handle. And I think that's so cool to see in Bitcoin that, um, all kinds of people are taken seriously, whether they have a PhD or some other background or whether they are a, a yeah, stupid cartoon character on Twitter. And I think that, that, that gives me, a, in a way, that gives me a lot of hope about humanity because people are really good at figuring out um, yeah, where the value is in a way. And I think that's, that's something to to be cherished. And that's also one of the main reasons why I decided to not dox myself just yet i want to stay anonymous as, as long as i can but uh yeah it will be hard <laughs> okay so let me get back to the idea of nationalized healthcare i have nothing against it and i guess if i was to talk trash about it i would be hypocritical because during the first years of my life i went to the hospital and never worried when i broke my arm whether or not I should be paying because I just presented my ID and my parents were working and I was a teenager. And that was enough information to not ask, get asked for any kind of money. But at the same time, when you have this system where everybody pays taxes for some services, you'll also have the money which is collected through taxes spent on stuff that nobody really agrees on because the yeah. state only gets bigger. And this is just my theory. I guess it could be flawed and it might not be like this. But if you went to local communities and you, you had the mayors, for example, organize and say, let's collect this percentage of the income to maybe fund the hospital and give free education to our children and not make any kind of discrimination between them and give them a free meal while they're at school, I guess people would agree and they would say, okay, I agree if I'm wealthier to give out more money to help that poor family because they deserve a better chance and my child must grow in this kind of environment where 
we are solitary with each other and we are charitable. But if the mayor went on and said, let's collect money for mass surveillance and for military activity and whatever nasty stuff the governments do, then nobody would want to give them money. And that's why taxation is in place to fund all the operations on which we don't agree and pay for all the increased politician salaries, which we don't like, and pay for their drivers. Here in Romania, they have special pensions, like they get 500 euro a month if they were drivers of famous politicians or yeah. if they were mayors and stuff like that, which is insane. Why do you have that? Yeah. Why, why do I have as a taxpayer to support so many special pensions for war generals and for a lot of people who maybe own confidential information about famous figures and they are basically yeah. bribing them to retire early and get free money from hardworking people just so they don't reveal the kind of information that they know. That's something very nasty. And once you get into military research and all kinds of stuff that governments do to surveil us, then you're going to realize that it, it would be a good idea to reduce the size of the governments just to teach them a lesson. Because yeah, exactly. they, exist, they exist just because we as people have agreed that they have authority. And we vote every four years, which means that we legitimize the system and we think that it works and it can bring the kind of change that we want. But how many times does that actually happen? You even have radicals who get voted into office. And I guess, I'm not sure if you know about Hannah Arendt, who is a famous political scientist. But, I know her by name, at least, yeah. Yeah, she said that the revo revolutionaries of today will be the conservatives of, of tomorrow once they win the elections. <laughs> It's always this cycle where you say and do anything to get to power as a politician. But once you get power, you realize that it's not that easy. There's only so I mean, much you can do. That's yeah, that's true. I mean, um, uh, again, there's so much to unpack here. I, I mean, the the statement by Hannah Arendt is is profoundly true. I think, but uh, I think it's even true without any politics. I think all the revolutionaries, in a way, are young, and the older you get, the more conservative you get. And I think there are good reasons for that, in a way. And uh, but that's beside the point. Uh, of course, related to the election cycles. I mean. <laughs> That's one of the problems in politics, right? That uh, you kind of your, your time preference is only on a horizon of four years. <laughs> If you're lucky, it's maybe eight years, but it, it's a couple of years. It's not like seven generations. There's the seven generation principle, which I really like. That uh, every decision you take and the general, the kind of life you you live, it should be geared towards creating a world that will take into account the next seven generations, not just your life. And politicians are on the opposite end of the spectrum. As you said, they only, uh, first of all, they only care about the election. So there will be a lot of lies <laughs> and then they'll get elected and then they will care about the length of the term, which is, you know, everything from two to eight years, something like that. It depends. So everything you said is true, but still it remains that those are really, really hard problems. And um, I mean, Governance in general is a really hard problem. And um, 
like as you said, I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the military, but the research money that went into the military in the like 50s brought us the internet. So I'm kind of a fan of that. <laughs> and you never know what comes out of it. And you kind of have to fund research and you also have to uh, fund like fundamental research like physics and other stuff. And the government pays for that as well for, for uh, like a, a big part of it. And there's always, yeah, there are always things that uh, a lot of people maybe don't think um, it's a good idea to spend money on, but maybe in reality, it's, it, it is a good thing to spend money on that. I don't know. You know, I mean, th those are very hairy subjects and, uh, we could talk about, um, yeah. Uh, if, if it's better to have a, a group of experts, uh, or if it's better to just, um, have the knowledge of the masses in a way. So all of that is baked into the problem of governments and, uh, and, and it's a really hard problem. And I think we will see that in Bitcoin as well. Like, um, is it more important to work on privacy and fungibility or is it more important to work on decentralization? Uh, is it more important to work on layer two solutions or is it more important to squeeze every bit of um, yeah, available room out of the base layer? And those are also like, you know, that those are in principle dealing with the same question. Uh, like, is it more important to spend money on healthcare or is it more important to spend money on education? All of it is kind of important, but resources are limited. And, uh, you know, the, I, I realized that the free market approach tends to be the most efficient in a way. And I think we see that also in Bitcoin, that people are working on everything all the time. And if something becomes more important, then people are working on that. And um, so, again, I agree with you. I'm just saying that it's a really, really, really hard problem. And as, as you said before, once such a system is in place, like a system to collect taxes, for example, it only tends to grow. It doesn't tend to shrink. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's funny because in the, uh, I, I used to be a big proponent of universal basic income because my background is in technology and I, I, I still believe that, but I just don't know what to do about it. I still believe that, more and more jobs will be automated. And I think that uh, the coming wave of automation and uh, artificial intelligence systems will make a lot of people obsolete. And like a lot of, not the people obsolete, but a lot of jobs in a way obsolete. And uh, I think that people aren't aware of that. Like you have many people that are studying to become a radiologist, for example. And already we have AI systems that are way better radiologists than the best radiologists that we have in the world. And so starting your career as a radiologist right now, which you will, you will complete your education in like 10 years or something, it's a really stupid idea because you will probably be done with your education and out of a job. And yeah, we see that all over the place and people don't really realize that. And once a fully autonomous cars hit for example then everyone will switch to that i mean it just makes uh, economical sense and a lot of people will be out of a job and just um re-educating these people like a truck driver that drove trucks for 50 years it's that's really hard to do i, I would say it's almost impossible to do and uh, in the us i mean the yang gang and andrew yang he proposes to provide everyone with a universal basic income and everyone will get like a thousand bucks a month <laughs> or something like that. And um, uh, the funny thing about that is that the same thing happens just like once, once you have a state and it tends to grow bigger and once you have taxes, they tend to grow bigger. And once you have a universal basic income, 
people will vote for these politicians that will give them more money. So you will, <laughs> once you have something like that in place, I'm pretty sure Young would win again and the freedom dividend wouldn't be a thousand bucks, but probably a thousand five hundred. And if you will run for office, uh, telling everyone that, okay, the freedom dividend is now over and you used to get uh, $1,500 just for the fun of it. And now you won't get anything anymore because uh, if you elect me, then I will cancel that. <laughs> it, I, mean, I mean, it's obvious that this is not going to happen. So uh, I think, again, this will produce something that will just spiral out of control. And uh, of course, it would hyperinflate the currency as well. And it's funny because you wouldn't be able to do that with Bitcoin. I mean, you would be able to do it in theory, but since supply is strictly limited, uh, it kind of would find a balance and it would behave in a way as if this wouldn't exist because, you know, if everyone would get the same share of Bitcoins automatically just by right of birth, then it would be like everyone is getting nothing. You know what I mean? It would just subtract out of the global economic equation in a way. And yeah, those are fun things to think about. But again, all of these are really hard problems and I don't exactly know what to do about it. I think, um, however, that Bitcoin in general will help to have an, a positive impact for all of those kind of problems. I agree. And also, instead of replacing jobs with machines, you can just reinvent jobs. For example, the truck driver can be the person in charge of making sure that the system works well. They can monitor the truck from a distance in front of their computer and they're responsible for whatever happens because I guess no matter how advanced the technology gets, you're still going to need somebody to account because our legal systems are built according to this situation in which somebody has to be guilty for. Yeah, I mean, that's true, but it's a problem of scale and we saw that in agriculture and it's also, I mean, I agree completely. And I mean, um, <laughs> we don't have to look far. I mean, look at some of the Bitcoiners, they reinvented themselves and they invented jobs out of nothing. And you can also uh, point to Instagram models and YouTubers and streamers and professional computer players and so on. But it's a problem of um, um, rate of change and scale. Like, I think since all of these are exponential technologies, it can happen really quickly and people are not good at um, adjusting with quick change. And uh, also it's true what you said about the truck driver, but then you will have one truck driver, like one person who used to be a truck driver in charge of a fleet of, I don't know, a hundred trucks or a thousand trucks, whatever makes sense. And what do you do with the rest of those? And uh, it's also... You know, the more, the larger your set of skills is, the easier it is to reinvent yourself and invent new jobs. But if you are very, very specialized and are suddenly out of a job, it's really, really hard. And I think a lot of drivers are really specialized and uh, they just know how to drive in a way. And I don't mean that in a, in a, a degeneratory way. I mean, uh, it, uh, I don't think that any job is easy. <laughs> so you kind of have to know what you're doing and you need a lot of experience and you have a lot of responsibility, but it's, I, I think it's a hard problem. And I, I'd be surprised if the optimists about that are right. And I would be surprised that 
a lot of new jobs will spring up and people will migrate to these jobs or yeah i i would i would be very surprised if all of this has a good outcome because the way i see it is that the younger generation doesn't make as much money as the older generation for a multitude of reasons and i think that's also why bitcoin is very attractive to young people because young people inherently realize that in a way i mean my father for example we were a family of five and he was able to support everyone with one job in a way and it would be almost impossible for me to do that and uh, buy a car and buy a house on the side you know what i mean and so a lot of people our age um, realize that their possibility nowadays is not to do what their father and the grandfather did which is work a lot and save a lot of money in the conventional way but uh, you probably have a better chance to bet on bitcoin and i think a lot of people in our generation already made this bet and it paid off extremely well and they are reinventing themselves as yeah you know bitcoiners call them what you want and they are doing new things and they are also um, providing value back to everyone for example jack Muller's. Uh, the Mollus family, they they were in very early and now they are like Jack is creating the SAP wallet, for example. And it's an excellent wallet uh, and I think it will generate a lot of value. And he, um, yeah, he makes good use of the money he earned by investing in Bitcoin early. So I think we will see that over and over again. But still, again, uh, um, a final note on the automation and stuff i think which will come in the next like 10 20 years um i'm not sure if the new jobs that will spring up will be enough and i think that things can get really bad especially if you combine it with a potential global catastrophe like we had with the financial crisis and we just you know uh, i think 2008 was just uh, a taste of what is to come i i think the potential is here in the global economic landscape that things get really, really bad. And um, yeah, I mean, everyone who saw recent videos and photos of Venezuela, uh, a, a country where the financial system doesn't work anymore, where just money breaks, it's, it's not a pretty sight. So um, again, Bitcoin is a hedge for that as well. But I really hope that at least globally speaking, it will be a smooth transition and not an apocalyptic bad transition. Also, you mentioned something about the previous generation making money a lot easier. I think another reason for our generation, and I'm not sure how old you are, I'm 27. I guess you're a little older than me, but it yeah. doesn't matter. I don't want you to dox yourself. But our generation doesn't want to inherit the debt of our parents and grandparents as they basically built this financial system where they made themselves rich on the short term, but we have to pay back for the loans which the government got from the World Bank and stuff like that. And this translates in lower, lower purchase power. And basically, I guess my generation here in Romania is in this kind of modern slavery where we if we want to get a house like our parents did, then we have to work for 30 plus years to pay back the loan. Whereas yeah. they could pay back for the house in about five years and then get a car and stuff like that. That's no longer possible. 
the price yeah. of real estate has increased disproportionately with the incomes. And there's no way for us to actually have the same living standards or move away from our parents' house when we turn 18 and basically embrace our liberty as citizens. Yeah, That's not as realistic as it used to be. You can still struggle, but you're going to be struggling for a longer time before you make it. In their case, yeah. they, they would struggle for a few months and then get a good job. And from that point on, just make a lot more money. And yeah. money up to that point, I guess, was not as inflationary. Well, it depends on the country where you come from. But do you have this discussion in Austria that the currency oh, yeah. had before the euro was less inflationary and you did not have to carry the dead weight of countries like Greece? Yeah, we we have these discussions sometimes. I mean, it, it generally loops back uh, just to inflation that it's... It, it, it used to be called the Austrian shilling and um, it's just funny to look back. I remember, I mean, I, I bought my first beer in shilling, for example. And uh, so I kind of know what things uh, used to cost. And uh, it's insane to look back and, and um, not adjusting for inflation, <laughs> looking back what, what uh, yeah, the actual, how the actual purchasing power changed and we have these kind of conversations but uh like i'm in my mid mid 30s now and um all of my friends are getting married having kids um uh, or having their third kid and they're all getting loans and buying houses and um i think what you said is profoundly true and it's even worse like it's not that i, I would even go as far as to say, except if you're really, really lucky, you have almost no way of paying back your house in full. And I'm saying that because I talked to an architect a while ago. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a friend of my girlfriend, actually. So, so um, she has two kids now and a husband, and she just got a loan, a huge loan, and they bought a house. And she knows how, like, how the house is built and she knows all the properties of all the walls and of all the, uh, um, the substance that the house is made of. And her loan runs for 35 years. And some of the substances that are built, like the, they used to build the house, they have a, a shelf time of 30 years. So the house will be you know, in a way, garbage after 30 years, but the loan runs for 35 years. So, you know what I mean? You, you don't even pay back your house in full. The, before you even paid back your house, it will already needs, it already needs to be re renovated in a very big way because the substance of the house is already bound to collapse in a way. So it's a fiat house. <laughs> it's a fiat house paid by fiat money and with horrible conditions to work the loan. And all of this assumes that both parents can work their current jobs for the next 35 years. And I think that's the thing that's most unrealistic about it. And also it assumes that there will be no other financial crisis or other economic collapse. And I think also that is quite unrealistic. And so I think it's, it's even worse than, than most people think because no matter what you do, thinking that you will be doing the same thing, earning the same salary, 
that even adjusted for inflation for the next 35 years, I think that's just insane. Just look back 35 years, like 80% of the jobs are, I don't know, at least from my group of friends that I have, they didn't exist. You know, I mean, the world is so different than it was 30 years ago. It's, it's kind of insane to think about it. And that's, yeah, again, it's a hard question. I don't know what to do about it. I, I would just say that one of the best things someone in this kind of situation can do is stay as flexible as you can. Like be aware that things are happening in the world and be prepared to move maybe if you have to and just, yeah, stay, stay flexible also in terms of what you do and what kind of education you choose. So the, the more skill sets you have, the better, I would say. I'm really happy when I get to discuss these topics with other people from Europe, because here in Romania, we like to point our fingers to Western European countries and say they had it figured out. They know what to do. It works. And in our case, it doesn't. And it's always the fault of somebody else. And we like to put the blame on people. But now that I realize that it's basically the same kind of situation and we're all screwed to pretty much <laughs> the same extent. I'm not sure yeah. if I should feel more comfortable with the situation yeah. or feel much more enraged that there is no really, there is no escape from this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good point. Not sure if you should be happy about it or sad about it that everything's fucked. No, I mean, it, it kind of works, you know, I mean, uh, in Central Europe in general, uh, it, everything still kind of works. I'm, and, and that's, you know, to put it mildly, I think we're living in, absolutely amazing times. And I, I've said it uh, at some podcast before, and I also recommended um, this book. Um, it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And the subtitle of it is How Violence Has Declined in the World. And um, it, But apart from violence, I think we're living in the, in the best times historically, uh, despite the catastrophe of fiat money. So I, 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 I truly believe... Um, what Seyfedin is saying that if we manage to revert to a gold standard, we will have a second Renaissance and a second Belle Epoque, like the time where we were on the gold standard. Uh, it was one of the most, um, yeah, um, yeah, the most, uh, I, I'm about to say preposterous, but that's the wrong word. Prosperous. That's it. <laughs> the most prosperous time in history. And I think if we manage to convert to a Bitcoin standard, we will, have something uh, approximating a second renaissance. But again, I, I think that in general, everyone is having the same problems. And just by happenstance and luck of history, I'm born in Austria and you're, you're born in Romania. And so I'm in general better off than you are just for historical and geopolitical reasons. And, but, but still, it... I think when you talk to people, everyone kind of realizes that things are a little bit crazy and it, it feels like it can't work for much longer. It, like the, the systems that are currently in place, they feel very brittle as well. And I think, again, 2008, the economic crisis, it was one tiny taste of what can happen. And I think we were very, very lucky that it didn't get worse. And I believe that it, I, I think it's almost obvious to me since governments 
in general and uh, the central banks of the world in general, they didn't do anything to course correct. They only made things worse. So similar crises are about to happen. And yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what will happen after that because um, maybe some, some governments and some countries are quick enough to adopt sane policies and the people that can afford will flock to those countries and those jurisdictions. But maybe it will be something completely different than what I can think of, for example, is that something like a parallel economy and a parallel system will evolve. And I think we, we just see that online. I mean, um, for example, also in terms of creative work, you know, just look at all the creative works that are generated online and circulated purely online. I mean that really as a parallel world, like niche videos and niche um, works of art that are created. It's unthinkable that this would have happened in the real world, quote unquote. And I think uh, similar things can happen in the economy as well. And I think we already see that happening. I think that's also so fascinating about Bitcoin is that everything is happening all the time uh, at the same time. It, uh, people talk about the three properties of money in, in Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin is evolving at such a fast rate that people use it as a store of value, as a medium of exchange and as a unit of account at the same time, but it's not the same set of people. Like traders will use it um, as a unit of account, because if you trade shit coins, then the only thing that counts is how much Bitcoin you have. A lot of people use it as a store of value because especially if, if um, the value of like the government currency you ha happen to have to use uh, is inflating or even hyperinflating. And I myself use it as a store of value, even though the euro is kind of fine, but I just um, um, the obvious relative strength of Bitcoin over just a couple of years makes me prefer Bitcoin as a store of value to the euro. And of course, there are many things that you can only get online by using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. So all of this is happening at the, at the same time. And I think, yeah, it's already happening with a parallel economy as well. Like there are some people that, for example, for God's sakes, they create... <laughs> Twitter banners for people and they're paid in Bitcoin and not only Twitter banners for people, but Twitter banners for Bitcoin people. <laughs> and so we, we already kind of have a very weird parallel economy where um, people are, will work for Bitcoin, uh, are getting paid in Bitcoin and they pay goods and services in Bitcoin. And maybe that's one way out of uh, global catastrophe in a way that the parallel economy is big enough so that it doesn't really matter what happens with the rest of the world. And I think we saw that, for example, with the death of newspapers and other publications, it doesn't really matter, like at all. Everyone is getting the news online and just the way you consume information has changed so drastically that it, uh, I, I couldn't care less if some Austrian newspaper runs out of money and goes bankrupt. It, it really doesn't matter to me at all. And I think uh, a lot of my, a lot of people in my generation would say the same. And I think it's the same also for cable news and cable TV and so on. It wouldn't really matter if they go away, the world has moved on. And maybe the same can happen with Bitcoin and money and the economy as a whole. Well, I partially disagree with mediums disappearing because 
sometimes it's useful to have something physically because you know it cannot be altered. It's there no matter what. And in some situations, you can see how certain individuals whom I don't want to sue me can alter their identity and existence and business record for the sake of making certain claims. And then they go to court and in some jurisdictions, the Wayback Machine is not considered to be any kind of irrefutable proof. So they do not accept it. Mm-hmm. So when it's digitized, you know that somebody can, somebody has to store it. And in order for the information to be intact, you have to really trust the custodian of the information. We have gatekeepers of the information whom we should trust that they do not alter arbitrarily the data. And I guess there are ways you are into computer science. So I guess, you know, ways in which this can be done through advanced encryption and stuff. But also once it's on paper, you know that it can be saved into archives and I don't know, it's just harder to forge. But are you saying that in, uh, as a response to my comment of media going away and like, for example, the New York Times going away and uh, you need something like the New York Times because it has a certain authority and you can trust the information in it? Oh, I don't mean, I don't mean it like that because... I agree that the news can be garbage both online and on paper if we talk about authority. But it's just for historic purposes to store events and make sure that maybe leaders of the future who may or may not be dictators don't mm-hmm. come back and say, how about we change that event like in Orwell's 1984? It's so much easier to do it online with data than it is with paper that exists in a storage maybe you can hide yeah, away but, the paper but still <laughs> yeah that that is very very true and uh, again it's a hard problem to solve and i mean i think there are ways around it and i think bitcoin solves this problem perfectly it's really really hard to change something which is anchored in the blockchain and i think we already have services that you do that beautifully where you can uh, create a proof of existence uh, timestamps for example um, I think Peter Todd developed that and uh, so you can take um, any arbitrary data and create a cryptographic proof and put that proof into uh, like anchor it in the Bitcoin blockchain so it can't be altered like the result of this cryptographic proof can't be altered after the fact but it's not perfect and it's complicated to understand that people are not used to it and so on and so forth. And I completely agree that um, changing a past printed issue of the New York Times, for example, is extremely hard <laughs> as compared to changing digital information that's stored somewhere centrally and so on. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of optimistic uh, because I think people are very adaptable and i think that loops back to what i was trying to say at the at the very beginning that the digital realm is just so very different than the physical one and uh what you say is profoundly true that digital information is uh, in general not to be trusted in a way because everyone can change it so easily it just flips some bits and something is different and you can like doctor almost every image and so on and so forth but I, I think the more the world moves into a digital realm, we'll get better of, uh, um, yeah, uh, 
getting used to this weird digital realm and uh, also creating tools like open timestamps um, that provide solutions to some of those issues. And I think the root problem of what you described is in essence a problem of centralization. And even in the digital world, you, you, you can have a meaningful amount of decentralization and then things are really hard to change in a way. But I, I agree, it's a, it's a hard problem. I like to think that the stuff you can touch is much more reliable than anything else. But I also have this theory on Bitcoin that it only exists on the internet because it's the only way in which it cannot be censored. Otherwise, it would be like a commodity or something that you trade and is supposed to be complementary to gold. And mm -hmm. I think that ultimately Bitcoin will move past the internet and transcend into some other medium. Maybe yeah. radio and satellites, <laughs> that's the future. <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, Oh, oh man, <laughs> I could talk about it for probably another two hours <laughs> because I, that's one of the things I, I think about the most probably. Um, Bitcoin is so extremely weird because it's pure information. And I think the reason why Bitcoin is currently living, like the Bitcoin organism in a way is currently living on the internet is because the internet is the best breeding ground because it's, it's a system that is really, really good at um, disseminating information. Like that's, that's what the internet does. And the, as soon, I, I completely agree with you, as soon as uh, we have something else that is even better at uh, disseminating information, then Bitcoin move, would move, would migrate to that medium. And I think it already does in places where it has to, like where the internet is censored or where you are forced to use mesh networks and other things. But um, uh, I quickly want to comment on what you said with, um, uh, for you, it's, everything that you can touch is more real in a way. And I, I think that's, that's a very large hurdle to overcome for almost all people. And the way I like to think about it, because I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it's true and if how, like how durable Bitcoin really is, is yet to be seen. I mean, it's really young. It's, it's like 10 and a half years old, but we have other systems that are pure information that have survived for thousands of years. For example, the Bible and other texts. And it doesn't matter if the original medium where the text was stored is gone. As long as the text lives on, the thing lives on. And I think Bitcoin is similar to that. At least in, in my frame of mind, it is like that. So it, it doesn't matter if like, we have something different than the current computers, like the current Turing machines. Uh, it doesn't matter if we have something else than the internet. Like if the internet goes away and is replaced by something else, it wouldn't matter for Bitcoin. And uh, also if, if, for example, languages change all the time, like over thousands of years, but if we don't speak English anymore, it wouldn't really matter for Bitcoin. We would use a, 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 another vocabulary for our seed phrases and underlying all of it is just pure information. It's just, it's, it's just zeros and ones and you can represent this information in all kinds of languages. And so I think, again, I think that Bitcoin is way more resilient than, than most people think. I think it could survive all of that. It could survive the death of the English language. It could survive the death of the internet as, as long as we still have some kind of way to transmit information efficiently, Bitcoin will still live on. And it would also survive the death or the replacement of 
all the computers, all the mining hardware, everything we have, because we could always, I mean, for, for God's sake, you, you could even mine Bitcoin by hand if you're motivated enough. And with the difficulty adjustment, it, it would even make sense. <laughs> so Bitcoin is very resilient. <laughs> Let's make a deal. How about if this is the kind of topic about which you can talk for two hours or so, how about you write about two, three pages about it for the Bitcoin Takeover book? And this may have served as a teaser for what's about to come. <laughs> yeah, why not? I'll, I'll take you up on that. Uh, <laughs> you, you I can't can promise something you. like Bitcoin beyond the internet. <laughs> I can't promise you when I will be done with it because historically I'm really, really slow with finishing articles. <laughs> But yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, this has been a very productive discussion and I'm not sure if... I have any more questions at this point because I guess we have talked for over two hours and we're both hungry and tired. It's almost midnight <laughs> yeah, here. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll let you sleep then. And that was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Gigi. And this was incredible, actually. You never would know what you get, but in the Bitcoin space, you always get extraordinary people who have all these interesting opinions. And even though a lot of people may call this a cult where we form an echo chamber and create this sort of uniform opinions. But the more I talk to people, the more I discover that they know stuff which I have never heard about. And it gets uniformized. How, what do you call that word? Uh, I'm too tired. But and as, 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 a last, as a last comment... Um, I would be in favor of fully embracing the cult idea and form a Bitcoin religion because it would be way easier on everyone's taxes. And maybe we, we will be enough people to actually do that one day in the future. Right. Well, I don't know about that, but yeah. <laughs> I try to stay away from I, the cult narrative because <laughs> I try to pose as a regular person who got into this for very rational reasons and as part of the community to learn and not to get brainwashed by some kind of weird cult. And I never bought any Bitcoin-specific merchandise. I don't wear it in public. I try to be as normal as possible just to stay sane and not get, you know, <laughs> taken too far. That's also very good OPSEC, so I encourage everyone to do that. <laughs> yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So thank you. I'll okay. post this tomorrow, just so you know. Thanks again. Thanks again for having me. That was great. Have a good night. You too. Gute Nacht. <laughs> yeah. Gute Nacht, Vlad.